This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Well, podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity, like Progressive Home and Auto Policies. They're best when bundled, too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save over $775 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $779 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary, not available in all states. It's Thursday, February 29th, and the GOP wants to take a big leap forward. We start here. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says he's stepping back and the race is on to succeed him. It's three Johns, John Barrasso, John Cornyn, and John Thune. That's not the only position that's become available, why this could be a transformational moment for Republicans. It was used in America's deadliest mass shooting, but is it illegal? Do these devices effectively render a semi-automatic gun uh, into an automatic one? The Supreme Court weighs whether to outlaw bump stocks. And it's the fabric of our lives, but it was also the fabric of the slave trade. Cotton wasn't the oppressive thing. It was people that was oppressive. Now, some black farmers are ready for a cotton rebrand. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. For the last 15 years, when you think of Republicans in Congress, chances are you picture Mitch McConnell. If there's anything all Republicans think are important to the country and to our party, it's comprehensive tax reform. The senator from Kentucky became the chamber's top Republican in 2007. He's been majority leader when his party's in charge, minority leader when they're not. He's been the architect of some of the most consequential Republican policies of his generation, from massive tax cuts to stalling Barack Obama's Supreme Court pick, which crucially eventually led to the overturning of Roe v. Wade. But McConnell's also a classic politician in that he will work with Democrats to avert a shutdown. He'll stall an effort by his own members because he knows it'll hurt the party in the long term. And perhaps all of this led to a changing of the guard yesterday as Mitch McConnell announced that later this year he will be stepping down. He will no longer be that face of his party. Let's start the day with Sarah Isger, a former Republican strategist and ABC News contributor. Sarah, why now? Like, wh- why was this the moment for McConnell to step down as leader? Well, we've certainly seen pressure across the board from Trump allies to sort of push some of the old guard GOP out of the way. We've seen it at the RNC and we've seen Trump allies pushing to have McConnell removed. Now, reminder, McConnell said he was stepping down in November, like after the election. So this is one of the longest retirement runways we've seen in a long time. Like authority and name only from here on out. Yes, exactly. Um, So I think he's really just trying to get ahead of the news cycle. He'd have some health problems. Uh, Donald Trump Jr., for instance, had called him like glitching Mitch, Mitch glitch. Um, So uh, moving ahead of that and also just making clear you know, he's not, he's 82. And unlike the other octogenarians we're talking about who are leading our country, you know, he's he's signaling his exit. But you're speaking about like the disdain that say the Trump wing of the party has for him. Why? What? What is the, where does that come from? Two places. One, of course, is simply that Mitch McConnell has never bent the knee, so to speak, to Trump. He's never been a Trump guy. He hasn't just approved everything Trump has done. Um, he's been in some ways a thorn in Trump's side when he was president. And even since, I mean, just think about around the January 6th impeachment hearing. Or President Trump's actions 
preceded the riot were a disgraceful, disgraceful dereliction of duty. Second of all is that even policy-wise, I mean, who represents the Republican establishment more than Mitch McConnell and that sort of Reagan mm -hmm. Republican three-legged stool that Donald Trump is trying to dismantle in his own efforts to remake the party? After fighting Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan, and the Democrats. Sometimes you wonder who was worse. So in that sense, it's twofold. If McConnell, I think, had come around and been a MAGA guy, maybe then the McConnell-era Reagan legacy wouldn't have bothered them so much. But it's really that combination of McConnell making clear he's never been a Trump guy and that he sort of maintained these traditional conservative beliefs. So who takes over? I got to imagine, like, the jockeying has already <laughs> begun. Dude, the jockeying began six months ago. Maybe it began right. five years ago. Yeah. Um, you know how when uh, Queen Elizabeth was in her 90s, you know, it was like, well, is Charles going to take over in his 70s, you know, or will it pass? Like, this has been going on for a while. It's three Johns, John Barrasso, John Cornyn, and John Thune. And, you know, really, we're talking generational change. Mitch McConnell, 82 years old. Two of the three Johns are in their 70s. One of the Johns is in their 60s. So just a huge shift in, I think, the, the age cohort that we're talking about here for Republican leadership. Well, and, and I'm thinking about how the party is changing. And it's not just the Senate. It's not just the House where they've got a new speaker, by the way. You also mentioned the Republican National Committee, the apparatus that runs primaries, runs fundraising for a lot of the GOP. Leadership there is up for grabs. Why has that position become such a lightning rod? For many of the same reasons and different reasons. So Ronna McDaniel was the former head of the Republican National Committee. This is the campaign arm of the Republican Party. Ronna McDaniel, of course, came in after Reince Priebus became chief of staff to Donald Trump. She was the Trump pick at that point and was really seen as um, part of the Trump team in a lot of ways. Clearly, things have not gone particularly well for the Republican Party. Most people would say that's because of Donald Trump. Hmm. But, of course, uh, Donald Trump can't say anything is Donald Trump's fault. And so they've placed a lot of that blame on Ronna McDaniel. The final straw, I think, has been Ronna McDaniel's unwillingness to push the members of the RNC, the 168, as they're called, because creatively there's 168 members uh, who get to vote, uh, unwilling to push them to basically declare... Uh, Donald Trump, the de facto nominee of the Republican Party, um, and has allowed this primary to continue with Nikki Haley. Oh, like this was where, like after the first two contests or whatever, they were like, you should just name him the nominee now. And she was like, well, no, we're going to let people vote. Yeah, so that's number one. Number two has been this sort of side scuffle that not a lot of people have paid attention to, but it's been pretty important in Republican circles. Will the RNC pay Trump's legal bills? Hmm. You know, they're raising huge amounts of money to support what will looks like be Donald Trump as the Republican nominee, are they going to spend millions of dollars on just the legal bills instead of the campaign itself? Ronna McDaniel, I think, showing a lot of hesitancy to spend RNC money on that. And the person who might replace Ronna McDaniel? It's very clear the choice in the Republican Party for the nominee for president of the United States is Donald J. Trump. Lo and behold, it's potentially Trump's daughter-in-law, who I don't think will show that level of hesitancy. <laughs> Yeah, Laura Trump, right? How? What is the reaction to like the president's daughter-in-law potentially taking over the the reins of the party? I mean, to those of us who have previously worked at the RNC, uh, horror. But uh, this is where the Republican Party is right now. They have, I think, signaled that um, the majority, at least, 
believe that Donald Trump is not just the standard bearer as the nominee, but is the Republican Party itself. And so, yeah, it's a family affair at this point. Laura Trump has signaled that she's wanted to be involved more, and this is seen as a good place to put her. Right. We've been hearing this might happen, but yesterday she finally kind of officially threw her hat in the ring. And now we're in the middle of a presidential election year. It'll be fascinating if Trump, whether he wins or loses, what it will mean to have his family running this entire apparatus. All right. uh, Sarah Isger, thank you so much. Thank you. Next up on Start Here, it sounds like a machine gun, but should it be outlawed like a machine gun? The Supreme Court considers bump stocks after the break. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. The picture of the 2024 race is becoming clearer, and it's looking like a rematch between President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump. It's an election with few comparisons, both a current and former president running. So how should we make sense of this unique election? I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters, using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Yesterday, the Supreme Court heard a case about the firearm accessory used in America's deadliest mass shooting, the bump stock. Remember, you're not usually allowed to have an automatic weapon in this country where you just hold the trigger down and bullets spray out. What the bump stock does, though, is take a standard semi-automatic rifle and harnesses the recoil, the kickback, to make your finger hit the trigger sometimes hundreds of times per minute. In 2017, after the mass shooting in Las Vegas, President Trump ordered it banned as an illegal machine gun. But is it one? That's the question that the Supreme Court was looking at. And we're joined now by ABC senior Washington reporter Devin Dwyer. Devin, it's unnerving just to hear that was like stock footage, basically, from the inventor of the bump stock who you spoke to. It's unnerving just to hear that number of rounds rattling off, let alone the actual shooting. What, what was this case about? Well, it's a case about a ban on this device, Brad, that was invented uh, back in 2008 by a guy named Jeremiah Cottle from West Texas, an Air Force veteran who was on food stamps at the time and simply wanted to go out and have fun in his backyard and spray a lot of bullets really fast. You can take pretty much any semi-automatic firearm and then using a technique, you can make that gun shoot extremely fast. So it's like a poor man's machine gun. Oh, yeah. Pull that pin down, and it slides right on. He came up with this concoction he called the bump stock. He mailed it into the ATF. That's the Justice Department arm that uh, regulates firearms. And right out of the gate, they approved it for sale. All right, going hot. Eyes and ears. Range is hot. Cottle went into production. He sold... Hundreds of them in the first four days. He sold 20,000 bump stocks in the first year uh, and more than 700,000 by 2017. You pull the trigger, it fires one time. 
it recoils and you pull the trigger again to fire the next one. What my product does is just allows you to do that very quickly. A huge success catapulted him uh, to millionaire status. Um, but all of a sudden, after that shooting you mentioned, where 60 Americans were killed, 500 injured by a deranged gunman from the Mandalay Bay Hotel using multiple guns equipped with bump stocks, the government did an about-face. We also completed the process to issue a new regulation banning bump stocks. President Trump ordered uh, the ATF to take another look at this. It was even backed by the NRA to regulate these devices. Only one guy was making them in the country, and that was Jeremiah Cottle. Uh, and all of a sudden, literally on the turn of a dime, those who owned these devices, which for eight years had been legal, were now suddenly at risk of becoming felons. A 90-day period now begins, which persons in possessions of bump-stock-type st- bump devices must turn those devices to an ATF field office or destroy them by March 21st. And so you saw store owners like Michael Cargill of uh, Texas Gunworks immediately take them off the shelves. This is a product that I legally purchased, you know, and had it, you know, in the store and someone else purchased this product and they had it in their home. Uh, and all of a sudden, an agency within the federal government decided they're going to ban this particular product. And I said, this is crazy. Other Americans surrendered them. Jeremiah Cottle, who was making them, sent uh, 70 pallets of these to the ATF to be melted down. And the case now before the Supreme Court yesterday is, was all of that even legal? Um, This was not a Second Amendment case about gun rights. This was about interpreting a 1934 law known as the National Firearms Act, which bans fully automatic machine guns for civilian use. And the question on the table, as you said, was do these devices effectively render a semi-automatic gun uh, into an automatic one? Uh, And it was a fierce debate, Bad, because for so many years, regulators of both political parties said it didn't count until we had that horrible mass shooting and then things changed. And Michael Cargill, that gun shop owner, says, if we're going to ban a device and turn turn all these people into felons, in his words, Congress needs to do that, not the bureaucrats. That's what's interesting, Devin, is it's not like there's a law that Congress ever passed before or since saying you can't have a bump stock. It's just that there is a law saying you can't have a machine gun. And the interpretation of that could what change on depending on who's president or who's in charge of the ATF? Well, it was a mind-numbing debate yesterday on the technicals of what is a machine gun. The 1934 law, well before anybody invented a bump stock, says that any weapon that fires automatically at the single function of the trigger constitutes a machine gun and therefore is uh, you know, prohibited from sale, can't be manufactured in this country, although those that existed at the time were allowed to be uh, remain in circulation regulated. But what about this device that slides onto the back of a gun and harnesses the recoil and once you tr- uh, activate it once, keeps going, spraying bullets at 400 to 800 rounds a minute? Certainly not the level of a machine gun, which can be up to 950 rounds a minute, but it's a heck of a lot faster than pulling the trigger individually, you know, 60 times a minute. And so the court was all in the weeds on the details of this, and it was not clear how they're going to come out. It gave me the opportunity 
to do something amazing, to create a business. Jeremiah Cottle and bump stock advocates, Brad, are, are framing this really as a regulatory case, the big brother government coming in and changing its mind on a dime and crushing the small business owner who rose from nothing to success in this country and popularity uh, among some good, hardworking Americans. On the other hand, you have victims of the Las Vegas shooting telling us that it is unconscionable that the government has allowed this for so many years to be on sale. As a survivor, to know that you experienced this life-changing event, that you could have um, been killed, our mother could have lost two daughters that night. We need it to be regulated. I talked to two survivors from the Vegas shooting, Brad, who said that is the very same thing that gunned down so many people around them. It's fun to drive a supercar at 180 miles an hour down a highway, but we don't allow that either. One small arms training expert, retired Army commander Steve Kling, told me uh, as he has studied these devices, he has fired bump stocks, he has been in combat, he says there is really no uh, major distinction between an M16 uh, and a gun with a bump stock. And he says, unquestionably, they need to be banned. So where do the justices land? Like, did, did it seem split in there? <laughs> well, I, on the danger of these devices, it was very clear that the liberals were much more concerned about if it looks like a machine gun, sounds like a machine gun, then it probably is a machine gun. You're, you're saying, well, maybe they didn't define the bump stock as the trigger, but but it, it functions in precisely the same way. And a torrent of bullets comes out. And this is in the heartland of what they were concerned about. Which Congress is- intended, Elena Kagan said, weapons like this to be off the streets. But you had the conservatives, the textualists, parsing the words of the law. Amy Coney Barrett, uh, Justice Barrett said, you know, this intuitively, I'm with you on this being a dangerous thing, but I'm not quite sure the definition applies to this. And I think the question is, why didn't Congress pass that litigation, I mean, that legislation to, to make this covered more clearly? So there was some school of thought, Brad, that perhaps Congress needs to to go back and tweak this if they want it banned. Uh, But at the end of the day, even Clarence Thomas, Justice Samuel Alito, who would probably most in support of the bump stock, signaled, you know, maybe Congress's intent here should matter. If they banned machine guns, why wouldn't they have banned bump stocks? But a fascinating debate. And in that crowd in the courtroom, I saw Michael Cargill, the Texas uh, gun shop owner. He wants them back on the shelves, Brad, as soon as possible because he says uh, these are about having fun uh, and that if bad guys want to do bad things, they'll get their hands on whatever they need to to do that, uh, which is a familiar argument we hear from gun rights advocates. Yeah, although in this case, again, deadliest shooting in American history perpetrated with, with one of these in a way that no one had ever quite harnessed before. All right, Devin Dwyer, thank you so much. Thanks, Brad. Today is the last day of February, which also means it's the last day of Black History Month. And perhaps one of the most fascinating stories I've seen this whole month has been the work of ABC's Steve Osinsami, examining how the legacy of slavery has impacted farming. And I'm not talking just about how black farmers have been sidelined since Reconstruction. I'm talking about the very crops that farmers choose to raise. Steve's with us now. And Steve, we're talking about the crop that a lot of people might associate the most with the American South, cotton. Absolutely. You know, you drive through parts of the South in the fall, and the fields are beautiful. They look like snow. Um, Long fields of cotton plants and cotton buds. However, it's a crop that for many Americans comes with a lot of shame, 
uh, trauma. Um, many black Americans look at these same beautiful fields of white cotton and think of slavery. Cotton wasn't the oppressive thing. It was people that was oppressive and taught us people and made us work like we was machines. We met 37-year-old Julius Tillery. He is a farmer, a cotton farmer, in North Carolina. So basically, we cut the, the bottom of the stalk, and, and we stuff in a box here, and we make products out of it. He tells you that he is fine with being called a cotton picker, which to many people is a slur. When I was at North Carolina a and I had a professor come to me and say, you know, you're just as rare as a bird with teeth. <laughs> you are a, a black cotton farmer that has an economics degree from UNC Chapel Hill. Right. And is trying to show farmers, in particular black farmers, and in particular black cotton farmers across the South, how to make good money in a global economy. We got to remember, this is American cotton. This is black cotton. This is special cotton. So we want to add that value to it and yeah. bring people together to change this perspective of negativity around cotton and show how cotton is something that we can have pride in. And part of what he's doing, Brad, is he's trying to change the narrative of what it means for black Americans to pick cotton. Why? Like, why is, and I'm not trying to be funny, but why course, is it important to have black cotton farmers? Why is that important to him? It's important to him because he wants to um, sort of be known in his community as being part of a, a profession that black Americans can be proud of. Mm. And right now he feels he doesn't have that. Well, a lot of people, what they know about cotton is what they've read or what they've seen in Roots and a lot of negative tropes. But a lot of these people, what they know about cotton is not from the fields and not from the people that's close to the fields. Think about it, when you, when you see the movies, a shorthand way to speak of oppression visually in like a movie like 12 Years a Slave. <laughs> is to show black slaves in cotton fields, picking cotton by hand in the, the baking sun, producing generational wealth for someone else besides the people who are picking the cotton. That's the, the sort of thought behind picking cotton in America for many Americans. And he wants to change that. Proof that there is still this shame and stigma is in putting together this story, I just started you know, looking around the internet and it, it didn't take me long to find story after story, incident after incident. A family speaking out after students were asked to clean cotton in class. For example, a, a history teacher who passed around cotton and asked the students to pick it. I was hurt and devastated and mad about it. I sat there for a few minutes and then started doing it because I didn't want to get in trouble. There are a number of examples of that. Um, and this is something that Julius Tillery is very well aware of. The pain is felt by people who've never been close to a cotton field. And you know, us that live close to cotton fields, we're numb to it. We don't, ha we, don't, we don't understand that pain because we live close to it. We, don't, we know that cotton is not here to hurt us. And he says that, you know, as a black American and as a black cotton farmer, as a cotton picker, as he will tell you, that, you know, he wants to change the branding of cotton and of picking cotton in black American culture. 
And so how do you how do you convince you know a high schooler, like a black teenager, a to become a farmer? Because you and I have talked before about just how how the farming profession is like. We want to diversify this profession, but then to be like the crop you should really focus on is cotton. Yeah. One of the points he makes is that there are very few black cotton farmers. In the cotton industry, where do black farmers sit? Uh, hardly don't even sit. I mean, it's not many of us. We are, we're basically extinct. There's less than 100 cotton farmers, black cotton farmers in the whole country. And cotton is big business. I mean, you know, I would say that, you know, of the many, 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 many people who are listening to our voices right now, Probably all of them are wearing something that was made from cotton. It sucks the cotton up and it goes into these gin, these, this um, gin equipment right here. He took us to a cotton gin where we got to see the cotton being processed. His point is that they're now competing with, you know, with global producers of this. What I'm doing is taking our cotton from the cotton gin and sending it to a cotton spinner, still controlling that cotton, so spin that cotton into yarn and then sending that cotton to a textile factory to make shirts like this. They've got a deal now, he and his farm, with Vans, the people who make Vans shoes. And they've come up with a t-shirt that they've made. The t-shirt has this emblem on it and he calls it the new rose. And it's a picture of a black co of a cotton plant. And underneath it, it's sort of advertising the fact that that T-shirt came from a black cotton farm. One wish of the civil rights movement was had there been more of an effort placed on land and property and home ownership, you know, because it's in America, it's one of the easiest ways to pass down generational wealth. Here's an example of it that we can celebrate and take comfort and joy in because he's inheriting this farm from his father um, who's, who's, who's about to retire. And this farm has been in his family's business since the former slave uh, who, who, who bought the land and is still buried on the property. So when I used to come by here and I saw his name on the grave and I was like, wow, that's here, and it made me always feel like I had to protect this area, you know, be really close to it because he did all these things and make this farm happen, so. And it, of course it could be another crop, you know. They could, they could crop, they could be dairy farmers, but, you know, this is what's in their family, it's been in their family, and it's, it, it's work for them. And he's selling it to all consumers, as he'll tell you, but in particular black consumers. I'm gonna give you a product made of the same stuff that you wear every day, that when you put on, you're gonna feel a little differently about, just because of whose hands were behind it. And that's a powerful thing. It's such an engaging topic that is really sparking a lot of conversation right now. Uh, Steve Osinsami, thank you so much. Always, always a pleasure. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, come with me and you'll be in a world of AI exaggeration. The suspense is terrible, I hope it'll last. One last thing is next. Now streaming only on Disney Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Does anyone here know the lyrics? Ruben. Taylor Swift: The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney Plus. And one last thing. I want an umpa lumpa now! 
If you know the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, you know a big theme is kids getting what they deserve. Violet, you're turning violet, Violet! But you gotta imagine, after spending gobs of money to get in, even Charlie and Grandpa Joe would have been disappointed by this. This week in Scotland, there was outrage building over a children's attraction in Glasgow that billed itself as Willy Wonka's chocolate experience come to life. In online advertisements, you saw magical footpaths weaving between larger-than-life lollipops, chocolate rivers, just like what you'd see in the movie. My chocolate! My beautiful chocolate! Tickets to this cost upwards of 40 bucks. Over the weekend, when families showed up, they saw this. What is that? It's the end of Instead of a chocolatey wonderland, this was a sparse industrial building, cement floors, bare walls, and a few styrofoam set pieces. Instead of a chocolate river, kids walked past folding tables and a few sheepishly painted drapes. We walked around this place and saw um, just health and safety nightmare for a start. That's Paul Connell. He's not a parent. He's a local actor who showed up that morning to play the part of Willy Wonka. We were told on the uh, experience to hand out a jelly bean, one jelly bean uh, per child, um, and a quarter of a cup of Tesco's own brand lemonade. That was what the children got. No, no chocolate. Connell said he had been told this was a legitimate gig. In fact, he was told to memorize a 15-minute script. He says he and other actors quickly realized they weren't going to get paid that day, but felt bad leaving children even more disappointed. So they performed anyway in clothes that resembled something you'd find at a costume shop's discount rack. We um, did our best with with what we had, which was which was very little. What was so frustrating to him and to parents was that everyone had a very distinct image of what this was supposed to look like. There were photos on the website of the chocolate factory you'd take your kid through. Well, it appears these images were AI-generated. In this era of advertising, you can take photos of the set first and then build the set later. Connell said the script appeared to have been compiled by a chatbot as well. By the end of the event, he said, it had become lawless. Children were crying parents were shouting, onlookers started stealing things, police were called. This was a child-sized fire fest. Organizers have apologized, saying tickets will be refunded. Some parents are asking to get money back for their train tickets, too. But when you think about it, Willy Wonka is not just the story of entitled children, it's also the tale of a madman who hires cheap labor and then invites children to a factory with no care for consequences. Perhaps you don't get more Wonka than this. They should have just said, you get nothing, you lose. Good day, sir. It's tough to argue with that. Hey, update to the Wendy's menu saga from yesterday. Remember this. They now say they never intended anyone to think they were going to implement surge pricing. In a statement, a spokesperson says, we never use that phrase. The only dynamic pricing plan we've got is to perhaps offer discounts during certain parts of the day. So we'll see what happens there or if this was just walking back a disastrous idea. More on all these stories at abcnews.com or the ABC News app. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow. 